Hello there. Welcome to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality, delving into the plant-powered world of herbalism. So do you know your echinacea from your eleutherococcus or your polyphenol from your polysaccharides? Whether you're a budding herbalist, an inquisitive health professional, or a botanical beginner, Herbcast is here to inform and inspire you on your journey to integrating herbs in our everyday lives. So settle down, turn us up, and let's start today's episode of the Herbal Reality Herbcast. Welcome to our Herbal Reality podcast series. I am Simon Mills. It gives me a special pleasure today to share a conversation with my longest established working partner in herbal medicine, Professor Kerry Bone. I've worked closely with Kerry for over a quarter century and owned him 10 years before that. As a born and bred Australian, Kerry made the enormous sacrifice of braving several years of English weather to study herbal medicine at Heinz Elstra's School of Phytotherapy in the 1980s. On returning to Australia, Kerry found the right partners to set up a new practitioner supply company, Mediherb, and has been its face ever since. He has developed at Mediherb almost certainly the highest quality practitioner supplies in the world, meeting the independently assured pharmaceutical grade standards required by the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration. I am very pleased to be able to use them in my UK practice. Kerry has been a prolific writer and teacher delving deep into the science of herbal medicine and phytotherapy, as well as its practice, authoring over 40 scientific papers, writing several key textbooks, including a couple with myself, and latterly the most important text yet for practitioners, functional herbal therapy. It's also worth noting that Kerry and I have joined forces again and present a regular series of webinars on the Mills and Bone Academy, where you'll find much more detail about Kerry and his work. In my view, and many others, there's no one on the planet who can eclipse Kerry for herbal expertise. Kerry, although you and I have spent much time together, I don't think I've ever heard the full story of how you moved from your pre-herbal life to make that journey to England. What was it that drove you to embark on such a big adventure? Uh, Shall we start with those earliest days? Yes, let's do that indeed, Simon. And firstly, thank you so much for your... Uh, your warm accolade. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, yeah, so I've, you know, you you've been my mentor. Uh, we've worked together on so many major projects, and uh, and we're still going. You know, it's just a bit like the Elton John song, isn't it? I'm still standing, <laughs> but maybe we should play that as a theme song in our Mills and Bone Academy <laughs> sessions. But I I think when I think back uh, about my journey into herbal medicine is it began with uh, my first days at university. So I had accepted a scholarship to study chemistry uh, and it was a scholarship where I would actually interestingly work for a a power company afterwards and they generously funded my time through university. And uh, what, what happened was when I was, I stayed at a university college, so this is Melbourne University, I stayed at Ormond College, and I became friends with quite a few med students. And for some reason, I was always a bit of a science nerd, and medicine had never been on my horizon. And I began to think, oh, maybe I should be doing medicine. I find this so much more interesting, you know, than chemistry and physics and pure mathematics. Can you believe it? 
So that sort of seed of interest in medicine was was planted by my association with my fellow students at the time. And then one day I was at the University Union and I saw an, a posting, an advertisement for a talk by someone who was talking about natural medi medicine treatments for health disorders. And can you believe at the age of 19 years, that was the first I had ever heard of it. I thought, oh really? Oh really? So it's not just about drugs and surgery, there, there are natural alternatives. So of course, you know, in those days, and I'm talking here the early 1970s, you know, universities were, were incredible breeding grounds of alternative approaches and thought. And uh, I certainly became interested in, you know, things like uh, yoga and, uh, you know, certain aspects of viewing the world that were, you know, a little bit more radical <laughs> at the time. And uh, I began reading a book by Wilhelm Reich. And uh, was a, actually it was about Wilhelm Reich initially, and then I began reading some of his works. And he, of course, was uh, a, a colleague of Freud who had studied um, uh, with him and developed interest in uh, what he called orgone, which was his rediscovery, if you like, of the, the, uh, the natural healing energy, the, the life force. And so it really sparked my interest in alternative approaches to medicine. And so here I was going through my chemistry. So I started studying naturopathy. There was a school in Melbourne where I was and I started studying it part time. And uh, I, uh, I got into the second year, you know, doing it as night classes. But then the, the naturopathy college, it was the Southern School of Naturopathy in Melbourne, decided that they were going to do away with night classes or at least the ones I wanted to do. And I thought, well, if I'm going to study this full time, you know, why limit myself to naturopathy in Melbourne? Why not look around the world at what all the options might be to, you know, uh, continue my education in this area? And uh, I had an option that I was looking at, which was I was going to study medicine and naturopathy at the top naturopathy school, which was in Sydney at the time, I was going to study them simultaneously. So I went to someone I knew who, who was older than me, who was a medical doctor. And I said, look, this is my plan. What do you think of it? And he said to me, he said, Kerry, don't do medicine. Don't do that. Because what will happen is I, I know the kind of person you are. I know your scientific nerdy type of brain. They said they didn't use that word then. And and you'll get caught into it and you'll end up a medical researcher, you know, chasing some discovery or, you know, or whatever. And you'll forget where you came from. So uh, it's quite interesting because I, I was late, later taught just how um, right he was with that approach because there was a young naturopathy graduate who worked for us at Mediher, but initially as a sales rep, and she was the daughter of a famous Melbourne doctor. And she was on this bandwagon to promote natural therapies. It was her whole raison d'etre. And uh, 
And uh, she went and studied medicine. And while she was in her first year, in this case, it was in Adelaide, she was emailing me, say, Kerry, come down and talk to the students and let's imbue them in natural medicine. She was so passionate. So I didn't hear from her for quite a while. And then I heard what, what had happened to her and she became a cardiothoracic surgeon. <laughs> so, so the advice I got, don't do medicine, was at the time, I think, the right advice. And, and he also said to me, he said, look, uh, I know a lot of naturopaths in, in you know, Australia and they're, they're nice people, they mean well, but they're not very knowledgeable. And don't forget, you're talking here at the time of the um, mid-1970s. I think you should study overseas. And rather than being what naturopaths are, which are kind of jacks of all trade and they do a little bit of nutrition, a little bit of herbs, a little bit of homeopathy, whatever. And at that time, some osteopathy was in the course as well. So I studied osteopathy in the naturopathic course. Um, just specialise in the one thing. And I thought, yeah, that, that makes sense. So I didn't have what my specialty would be in mind. It wasn't necessarily herbalism. So what I did, and of course there's no internet at the time, so you write to people. I was writing to people all over the world looking for leads and looking for information. And as you would imagine, it was a very, very slow process. So it took a year and a half of research and I was considering doing medicine and homeopathy in France because I had a bit of French, you know, simultaneously. I was looking at acupuncture schools in the UK. I was looking at a Heilpractor school in Germany, in which case I would have had to have learnt German. And I was looking at the, you know, the, the very uh, early naturopathic colleges in the United States. So I had, but, but generally I rejected because the uh, uh, thinking was, you know, do, do a specialty. I, I rejected the naturopathic options and started looking for specialties. So, um, and then I came across this curious organization called the National Institute of Medical Herbalists and how they've been going for over a hundred years. And, uh, and they sounded fascinating. And then I heard that uh, someone had actually set up a rather innovative herbal course in Tunbridge Wells in the UK. So, and I thought, hang on, you know, this, this, this sounds good. It specializes in herbs from the curriculum. It has a good grounding in medicine and, um, and and it looks like it's got a good teacher. So I actually went over and did an exploratory meeting with Heinz Elstra at the time. And you know, I yeah, you know, I loved Hein and I loved what he was doing and I was in. And in in a sense, it was what Hein had to offer that sent me along the path of herbs as opposed to any other modality in natural therapies. We have a lot to thank Hein for, don't we? And he, we do. We do indeed. He picked up the National Institute at a very low point in the 70s and, and uh, with, yes. the, with the course particularly and with various other initiatives, really pulled us up by the bootstraps. I was happy. Yeah. I, spent, I spent two days of my uh, week with him in those early years. Yeah. It's, it was a great form for experience for me too. So you arrived yes. in a damp and dismal um, Britain and <laughs> probably went down with long-term arthritic conditions as a result. Um, uh, no, I didn't. And my poor long-suffering wife, you know, prefers a warm climate uh, and uh, she had to make Earn, earn the income as best you could and every time a class would finish because you're sitting down so you're not generating much warmth so every time a class would 
finish, I'd huddle over the central heating radiator. And one of the students said to me, oh, Kerry, do you have central heating in Australia? And I said, oh, yeah, yes, yes, uh, we do have central heating in Australia. In fact, it's very, very central. We call it the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, well done for braving all of that. Um, and I know mm. you didn't last long for obvious reasons. After graduation, you went back to Australia. Uh, presumably uh, wanting to carry on what you'd learned in your new uh, back home. Yes, indeed. And, 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 you know, I went back to Australia with no other intention than establish my, establishing myself as a practicing herbalist. You know, I had no thoughts about, oh, let's set up a business or a company that makes herbs and what have you. But what was happening was that I found that the product that was on offer uh, wasn't of the quality that I was looking for. And, and because of my experience in the UK with Hein, I had been doing a lot of thinking about herbal dosing and preparing and, and using my chemistry background. And, and I, I felt that um, there was this movement, you know, Hein was sort of partly behind, which, which had, you know, when you think about it, it had a rational basis, but I felt fundamentally lent to underdosing, and that was, you know, uh, a lot of the older NIMH members were using these one-in-one -one fluid or liquid extracts, and they were incredibly denatured, and they all taste the same, and they all tasted of caramel because they'd been boiled up for so long. And apparently, if you went to some of the local manufacturers, you'd see them, you know, boiling and boiling and boiling away. And and so Hein, of course, went back to the process of maceration to make tinctures. But the problem with when you macerate, you retain all the beautiful organoleptic and phytochemical properties of the herb, but it's in a fairly dilute form because the herb has bulk. So you've got to add that much more liquid and you end up with a fairly dilute preparation, typically what we call one in fives, you know, one kilo of herb into five litres of, of uh, liquid, which is called the menstruum. And um, so I thought, no, I think we need to kind of get the best of both worlds, preserve the quality of what's in a tincture but but make them stronger so we can give more effective doses because i was looking at a lot of the traditional literature and of the pharmacopoeias and and a lot of the you know u.s herbal texts and thinking we needed to dose higher and so i developed uh this process of one and two percolation um which means you can you know by some clever manipulation you can extract like a tincture but into a, a a better ratio which is a one to two ratio and 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 it's kind of it's kind of funny because especially in australia that that's now the standard you know all the competitors of mediherb that's what they produce almost uh, without exception you know certainly the significant competitors and those who come and gone and tried to compete with mediherb all had a range of one and twos and all, the whole thing is set around that which is kind of ironic in a in a sense because that was never my intention so i developed that for myself in my clinic and then then i met up with a group of people who were who were looking at business ideas and had the funds to back a business and one of them said to me kerry i think we should start a herbal business because you seem to know what you're doing <laughs> and that was it that was in the wake of the tga wasn't it the the therapy no Fortunately, it was before the TGA. So we started our first percolation in 1987. 
And then we got hit with the TGA legislation in 1989. Can you explain, was, can you explain to others what the implications of yeah, TGA Yeah, was? so TGA is Therapeutic Goods Administration. And uh, basically the Australian government made, I think, the right decision, and that was that all natural medicines would be actually regulated as medicines. So they would have to be registered with the government, uh, you know, a lower level of registration that doesn't require too much documentation and what have you, more about safety and quality rather than efficacy, establishing efficacy. So they set up uh, what I think is a very good system, a great model, um, but the requirement was being medicines, they had to be made under pharmaceutical GMP and not some watered down, almost food level GMP that the FDA now requires in the United States. This is full pharmaceutical GMP. The inspectors were the same as the ones inspecting the drug manufacturers. And of course, you would imagine for a small business that was in its fledgling state, that was a, that was a huge, huge challenge. So, you know, I look back at my life and I think that was one of the most challenging times in my life. But we got in consultants and they helped us with it. It was done over two to three years. And the TGA accepted that you had to sort of stage it and step it through. And also we we uh, politically delayed. There were some aspects of the legislation that were poor. For example, because they didn't recognise natural therapists as such, then the claims that companies could make to natural therapists were no more than what they can make to the public. And we said, no, 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 because education is really important. So they allowed this practitioner-only exemption, but we had to lobby and fight for all that. So I was very much involved in all of that campaigning, you know, going to Canberra once, twice, even three times a month for extended periods of time. But we got that through and we had that generous transition. So it was by 1991, which was only really three and a bit years after we started the first percolations in, in a converted goat shed, mind you, uh, but converted well. Um, it was it was only then, uh, it, it was only in 1991 that we got our TGA GMP licence. And the fortunate thing is that the TGA have con continued to raise the bar and it's a very high level now. So you couldn't, you'd need a lot of money to do that from st startup. So we, we were just fortunate that we had that narrow window of opportunity. Uh, it, it certainly shows. Uh, I mean, uh, I was fortunate enough to visit the site in Warwick uh, some years afterwards and was bowled over by how mm. impressive it was. And it was comparable, as you said, to the pharmaceutical manufacturing sites. In every yes. Way. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, you wouldn't believe it now. It's like on steroids it's it's amazing and unfortunately uh you know the the uh, the current owners have invested a huge amount of money in it and millions and millions of dollars and and it's very impressive but because of covid we haven't been able to show our new factory to anyone you know. but that, that'll start happening soon i hope yeah well it also shows in the quality and uh, i think we could probably spend a moment or two just uh, talking about how that process translates into quality and indeed efficacy on the practitioner's dispensary. So, yeah, to, yeah, in your own way, I mean, I'm just picking it organoleptically and, of course, the results you see with patients, mm. but there is something about that approach to extraction, isn't it, that you use? 
It, it is. So you've got an efficient extraction that doesn't damage the natural phytochemical balance, but then also you, you're testing and validating all the way through. So, so you know, uh, medicinal plants, they're biological, so they're inherently variable and they come with a history. So you want to make sure that history is appropriate. And what we're seeing now, and I mean, the uh, American Botanical Council has done huge work in this regard, is we see a lot of adulteration occurs throughout the industry. And that adulteration can be very blatant where a completely different species is substituted. So, so the best example of that, uh, and I'll come back to it if, if, if you want to, is, is echinacea in the time that I was a student and in my early days. So one species completely substituting for another, but there are various other tricks that are used uh, where there's partial substitution or where, um, you know, uh, in some cases, not as widely as some people make out, but in some cases, you know, uh, uh, specific phytochemicals might be added back in where those phytochemicals are readily available and cheap. So good examples would be caffeine's added back into a guarana extract to make it look better than what it is. And, and uh, uh, an extract of sophora, which has flavonoids in it, is added back into ginkgo extract to get the flavonoid level up. And of course, with sophora, you also get isoflavones. And so if you see isoflavones in the ginkgo extract, you know it's been adulterated. So there's a huge amount of tricks. So the, the American Botanical Council, I think, has now published more than 70 adulteration monographs across each one on a different herb. So that's how difficult it is and how widespread it is. And, 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 and often what they're doing is deliberate and sophisticated. So, you know, we, we were trying to source a, a decent bilberry extract because the problem with bilberry is you, you, you can't cultivate it. So it has to be harvested at source and then regeneratively processed fresh into an extract. So in the case of bilberry, we need to buy someone else's extract. So we were looking at suppliers out of China and, uh, and we found that they were using uh, a potentially carcinogenic dye to give that blue coloration that would show up on a UV vis test for quality. Um, in the bilberry extract and and so we actually published on that and and that paper is still goes around there's still a popular paper you know from people working in the area uh about just about the traps that can occur well i talk about echinacea yes because uh, i was remembering yeah. that in the uk uh for a lot of the time in the 80s uh we when we thought we were buying echinacea we were actually buying parthenium integrifolium parthenium absolutely uh, as, as echinacea purpurea. So, so, so what happened was that uh, here I was, a naturopathy student in the UK in around the mid-1970s, and there, there, there were two famous naturopaths there. In fact, they were the people behind the Southern School at the time, Alf and Judy Jacker. And, uh, and I, I got to know both of them personally, and, uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, Alf died some years ago, but Judy has just passed away uh, very recently and left a wonderful foundation for supporting naturopathic research and education, um, which she began uh, in her latter years. And uh, so here I was doing some student time at the Jackers Clinic and I had to, you know, dispense uh, medicine for someone. And I thought, 
oh, this is echinacea. I had to pour in some echinacea. I looked at it and it was this pale brown, rather insipid looking liquid. And I thought, oh, I'm not very impressed with that. I thought this would be far more powerful because I'd, you know, echinacea's reputation had preceded it. And then when I came to do my student days in Tunbridge Wells, I found in the clinics there, like the student clinic and what have you, that they were using the same sort of echinacea. And then Hein Zalstra went on a kind of an epiphany when he went to the US uh, and attended a trade fair once and came back with this different stuff. And you put it in your mouth and your mouth tingled like crazy. And uh, I forget what Hein said. He wasn't kind of fully aware that the other stuff was, he was saying, this is Angustifolia and look how different it is to the purpurea we had. Uh, not realizing that it wasn't purpurea anyway. So, so Hein did, you know, create my awareness that there was this other stuff. And of course, uh, in the early days of Mediherb, I traveled extensively around the US and visited wildcrafters and what have you, and soon learned that, you know, th that what was being sold was Parthenium integrifolium. And there was a US company, which is still going, so I won't name them, at <laughs> risk of getting sued who made a very strong argument that seeing as Parthenium had been so, for so many decades and so widely substituted uh, for Echinacea that we should actually uh, allow the common name, that, sorry, the, the, you know, yeah, common name of Parthenium, we should be allowed to be called it Echinacea. Can you believe that? Uh, anyway, that didn't yeah. get much traction. So you've, uh, having got yourself now a, 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 a different breed of uh, uh, supplies, uh, you, I presume that sort of emboldened you to start um, developing the notion of herbal practice more widely. When did you start teaching? Oh, it was, it was uh, right from when I got back to Australia. It was, it was an economic imperative. There was no other, <laughs> no other rationale for it. But it's quite interesting because and so you're talking here um, about 1986. And some of the people who attended those classes with me, who's, you know, who I taught, and I, I, start, I taught the final year in this naturopathic college in Brisbane. Uh, the college is now defunct, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, some of those people are still in practice, still in practice. So I'm really, really pleased about about that and and indeed um, many of the top practitioners in Australia I had the privilege to teach over the I think it was uh, six or seven years that I taught undergraduate but I, I became eventually disillusioned with undergraduate teaching I'd probably like to go back to it again but yeah I doubt that will happen but it is fun getting people right from the beginning giving them such a good grounding and I was I was purely at the time imparting the grounding I had because it was only as I began reading and, and developing clinical experience that I had something personal to add so I was imparting more the education I got from Hine and yourself and others so that that's what I was doing and it was really fun to you know help people and and get them solidly grounded because I, I find the modern undergraduate comes out of college, certainly naturopathic college in Australia, with, with you know, with gaps in their knowledge or misunderstandings, and and it's nice to just give them the feel, you know, right right from the beginning. But ultimately, I became disillusioned with 
undergraduate education because of the high attrition rates. So, for example, of for every, you know, 50 people I taught, maybe two, three, four would end up in practice. And I thought, well, surely the way to go is, is firstly to um, focus more on people who are already got there and in practice and making them more effective. So I shifted more to postgraduate education, but then you came to me with a project, <laughs> which was a book saying, well, look, one of the problems you felt with herbal education worldwide for professionals, for practitioners, was they didn't have a standard reference textbook. So Simon Mills, you are the source of my gray hair. <laughs> As we embarked upon a very huge project, affectionately known as Mills and Bone, the bodice ripper. Um, and uh, the first edition, although it says, I think 2000 on the book, the first edition came out in 1999. And that, that was our it took a few years to get to, to that shape, so yeah, we must have started. In the uh, night, yeah, mid, yeah We started mid mid nineteen nineties. Mid, it was a big project. It was a huge project. So we started mid nineteen nineties, and and I got out of undergraduate education around about nineteen ninety two ninety three. So it was a few years after that it was your idea, and and the only consolation was that. Uh, is that we flew to Bali for our book meetings and we had our book meetings in Bali. And that yes, we had to choose a point midway and I chose Bali. Kind of midway. That's not midway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I, I wasn't arguing. And, uh, you know, it's kind of good that you didn't have the internet in those days because we probably have no excuse and we have to stay where we were. But then uh, it was a lot of fun yeah, uh, having every, those book meetings Every time meetings I see that book, I, I see Bali. Yes, it was yeah. One of the... <laughs> One of the, the driving forces behind it was that place. Yeah. So yes, and and, and since then, of course, your name has really been associated with these amazing seminars, conferences. Um, you know, first on, on behalf of Mediher, but also on your own behalf. And you have your own college in Australia. Um, you've been doing all sorts of coursework, and clearly, you you thrive on it. I mean, the amount of material that you can pull together for a presentation is astonishing. And so it's so much easier these days because I, I was just saying to my wife, Patricia, the other day, I was saying, you know, um, I've, just, I've just accessed 100 scientific papers on a topic. That would have taken me a week in a library in the 1980s, a full week, and I've done it in an hour, you know. So it, it, it's just so easy to do that these days. So it's great. It's so easy to generate material. But the trap is, with all this information flying around, a lot of people who are, get, are getting hold of it who don't know how to use it properly, misinterpret it, turn it to their own agendas and angles. So we're seeing this huge uptick in misinformation uh, and flying around and exaggerated claims. And so... I have a, a session on my Facebook page uh, called Grumpy Old Herbalist, and apparently it's the most popular one. And and so I often, you know, take these sort of issues and, and go to go to task on them. Uh, but, uh, you know, I could do one every month on, on internet misinformation, but in order to not be monotonous, I just do it from time to time. But 
you know, case in point, I saw this monograph on andrographis just a few days ago. And it said that andrographis combined with Eleuthero has helped people get through chemotherapy. I thought, oh, you know, because I wrote the andrographis monograph in Principles and Practice, updated it for the second edition um, with the help of Michelle Morgan in the first edition. And, uh, and uh, I thought, I haven't come across this paper, it must be recent. So I went on PubMed and did a search and I couldn't find anything. So I'm not so sure that study actually exists. And the whole problem was that this monograph that this person had posted online claiming all these issues, uses and applications of andrographis was totally unreferenced. So I had no opportunity to say, well, it has been done as a study and it's very obscure and you have to really dig for it or whether the person just made a mistake or even worse, made it up. And that's the kind of problem we have now. And is also reading further than the abstract because uh, authors are, have been found mm. uh, guilty yeah. to slightly embellishing their findings in the abstract. And then when you read the paper, it isn't quite what they say it is. So you, uh, yes, those and, 100 papers and, still have to be read. Yes, and scientific fraud does occur too. And and. The case in point, which I've done a grumpy old herbless about uh, on my Facebook page, was this DNA barcoding fiasco. And now the scientist at the University of Guelph uh, involved in that has been accused of scientific fraud. And that was hugely damaging to the herbal industry in the US at the time. And now this scientist's credibility is being questioned by none other than a very lengthy uh, demolition in the journal Science itself, which, you know, is is the most prestigious journal in the world when it comes to scientific research. You, you've been involved in uh, the journal Phytomedicine, I know. Um, and I have, I, yes. As, I as, think it was as, one of as, the as, first journals, I think, that insisted that any paper referencing a herb, uh, that any paper about a herb, uh, provided all its uh, um, quality assurance, uh, so phytochemistry and what have you, it could be re yes. reproduced because that game was one of the other bugbears in uh, in herbal literature was that uh, someone would come up with an extract not define it, or even not yes. define what the herb, uh, how the herb was prepared at all. Um, yeah, and, exactly, uh, and, exactly. And so you could never reproduce and it. Yeah. Exactly, and one of my bugbears still is that often the dose and the preparation and how the dose actually translates to the herbal uh, starting material is not transparent. To me, that should be in the abstract. But nine times out of 10, I'm searching through the body of the paper, just trying to understand what was actually used and how much of it as a specific type of extract and dose. And, and that's the critical information if you want to clinically translate the, those findings. And it, it's you know, and it's not, it's not there. Yeah, so this, this requirement for a much better definition of, of the herbal material used in the clinical trial was picked up by uh, Gagnier and co-workers. So they, you know, there's the consort guidelines for a clinical trial, and they actually have developed a specialist and published on it a specialist uh, number of criteria related to that for herbal clinical trials. And I have to say that peer-reviewing uh, clinical papers, very, you know, I often have to alert the authors that they need to look at the Gagné guidelines and, and make adjustments accordingly. 
So that leads us on to another big topic in our world, which is the question of dosage and what is the effective, what is the likely mm. effective dose. And uh, you and I have both uh, uh, gone on a bit about this, uh, but I wonder whether we can review some of the arguments here about what it is that herbalists, uh, herbal practitioners particularly, um, are using when we com when we combine uh, when, when when we put a herb together in a mix. I mean, on the one hand, you've got most of you we're doing five or six herbs in a or more even sometimes in in, in an individual blend. Uh, so they, each of those can't be delivered at the same level. So there's a question of synergies and so on between dosing. But where would you like to kick off on on the dosing story uh, from your experience? Well, just to reflect back on what I said earlier, that I felt that if you're using one and five tinctures and putting five or six or seven in a mix and then dosing five mils three times a day or eight mils twice a day, I believe generally you're underdosing. And so I, I, I believe with one and twos and one and ones, you can mix four to five herbs, sometimes six in a mixture, give eight mils twice a day or five mils three times a day. And I, I think you're going close to therapeutic doses. But for me, what I really want to know when dosing a herb is, is what was used in clinical trials and, and reproduce those doses if they've been established to be safe and effective in the clinical trial. Now, if that data isn't available, then I might uh, look more at traditional knowledge and what have you. But, you know, I was talking to someone about this the other day. Interesting, it comes up a lot. And, and I pointed out that if you look at traditional Chinese medicine and you look at Ayurvedic medicine, they give robust doses of herbs. And this concept of drop dosing, you know, I, I said the only time I ever drop dose is with ginger, you know, for nausea. So have, have a fairly strong extract, mind you, and drop dose to whatever level takes away your nausea. So that's about the only time I ever recommend drop doses, or maybe if I've got a, some digestive bitters, you know, maybe we can drop dose those on, on the tongue as well. Um, because that's more more of a reflex type effect. But we now know there are receptors in the gut and you need more robust doses to influence those bitter receptors in the gut anyway. Um, so so uh, I was reflecting that this whole drop dosing, I think, came from, if you like, a merging or confusion of homeopathy, which uses mother tinctures in drop doses, with Western herbalism, which uses... You know, much stronger preparations of mother tinctures in more substantial doses like milliliters. But, but because of, especially in Europe, where you have that you know, fuzzy line between homeopathic and herbal practice, it sort of came in there. And then you had the, the latter stages of the eclectic herbal movement in the US, where they also brought in some drop dosing as well for specific extracts, as they call them. Uh, you know, popularised by particular people like Scudder, for example. Um, I think that that is kind of added to our dosing agenda in a way that I think is ultimately, to my perspective, counterproductive. And, and a simple way that I look at it is this. So you look at pharmaceutical drug. I, I doses vary, but let's say for your average pharmaceutical drug, you might be giving 50 to 200 milligrams a day. And if you look across a wide range of drugs, they, those are typical doses. Some are much less, some are much higher, like metformin, for example. Um, 
So the thing about a herb is that it's got a lot of inert material in it. So it's got a lot of, you know, material associated with it doing its job of being a plant, you know, having a structure and, and metabolizing and living. So generally these, these phytochemicals, which, which for the main part are secondary metabolites are not thought to be useful for, for the, the fundamental life-preserving activities of the plant, yet the plant produces them because there's some advantage in doing so, possibly against predators or what have you. But these phytochemicals, they rarely occur more than, say, 1% to 2% of the plant's dried weight. Sometimes it's more, but that's fairly typical if you're lucky. So there's a factor of 100 or 50 to 100, 1% to 2% is is. 50 to 100 times more plant weight, you need to get that amount of those phytochemicals. So let's say 100 milligrams is an effective dose of that phytochemical, and it's 2% in the plant, well, you have to give a daily dose of five grams of the herb, if you're serious. There's no other way around it. And, and uh, typically the standard dose used in traditional and even not so traditional herbal medicine, you know, when I exactly. started it, it was two to four gram, two to four mils in a two to four yeah. grams. Yeah. And you look at Chinese medicine, typically three to nine grams, sometimes much higher. And, and it's quite interesting because I was, I was once at a Chinese uh, herbal practitioner's uh, practice and he was, uh, he was from China. So he, he was visiting from China, sharing his knowledge with, with some Chinese herbalists in Australia. And he had this computer program where he could put in the TCM, various TCM symptoms and parameters or what have you, and it would generate a you know, 10 to 20 herb formula. And, and he proudly showed me his list. It was, you know, astragalus, 20 grams, you know, Romania, 15 grams, this herb, that herb, 10 grams, five grams, 30 grams, 20 grams, five, whatever. And it was about 15 herbs. And it came to this great big packet like that, maybe a couple of hundred grams. And so I said to him, oh, you give that to the patient and they boil that up every day and it lasts them two to three weeks. Is that right? He said, oh, no, 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 no. One day, one day's dose. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a reality check. Because um, yeah. sometimes if we don't fall back on what our ancestors did we could be accused of making it all up so you know there's there is something to be said for revisiting you know well a, you know the evidence and, and be the tradition yeah. drop doses have some efficacy there's no doubt about that but uh is it placebo is it an enhanced placebo is it real at a pharmacological level or is it more of a kind of energetic medicine you know i think they're all the considerations but my point is this if if we want to get i mean there's countless studies where they've done dose finding studies clinical studies they've compared a, a low dose with a high dose for a range of herbs across a range of studies and almost without exception so let's say you get a 20 percent response rate in the placebo you get a 40 percent response rate for the lower dose and that's not drop dosing by the way it's a substantial lower dose and then you get a 60 percent response rate at the higher dose so my point is this, that clinical practice, you only get one go or maybe two if they're tolerant with the patient to get it right. Um, and, if you, and if you're relying more on factors out of your control or unknown factors like I mentioned, like energetics and enhanced placebo, 
you have a lower probability of success. And let's look at let's look at uh, say a medicine that works sixty herbal medicine that works sixty percent of patients in a clinical trial versus twenty percent in placebo. There's still forty percent of people who won't be helped by that. So you're already behind the eight ball, as they say. So if you're not giving adequate doses, you're not going to keep your patients in my view. It's as fundamental as that. Where do you think we're heading in the herbal world? What would you like and what would you do anything different? Is there anything that you would uh, like to see uh, as a legacy? Okay, so, so, so what's different? I'd be less naive. I thought that by the time I was getting to this age, that herbal medicine have a much wider credibility and acceptance, and it doesn't. You know, I see it all the time in the media, you know, you and I are a bunch of, you know, aged, latter-day, hip, kooky hippies who, you know, are defrauding people. Uh, that's kind of the image that's often presented of herbalists. Well, I've, if you're younger, you're not ageing, but in the case of Simon, I put through that in. Um, so, so we don't have the credibility we deserve, I believe. And, and I've even said that in Australia, when it comes to the government and the decisions they make and the opportunity that they're foregoing by harnessing the power of natural therapists in Australia to influence public health, that we are the lepers of healthcare. And someone said, oh, that's a very strong statement, but I feel that strongly. I do feel we are the lepers of healthcare. In the, so I'd be less naive and understand that, you know, no, 20, 30, 40 years is, not, is still not enough to overcome those barriers and, you know, and even, you know, so when I graduated in 1985, one of the criticisms when I talked to medical doctors, oh, you don't have much clinical trials on what you're using. We now have abundant clinical trials, but they're still denying they exist either or, or still maintaining there's not enough evidence for one reason or another. So, so, you know, we haven't won that argument and I'm not sure how we can other than just continue on as we are. So that that's kind of the downside aspect. But what I see that is hugely positive, and, and I'll put it this way in presentations, the biomedical scientist is the herbalist's new best friend. Because what they're doing, uh, what we're understanding from the research, issues about gut brain and the microbiome and how the microbiome processes herbal phytochemicals and they're in fact uh, uh, very powerful prebiotics and, and just, just the broader understanding of disease that when you actually drill down and look at the information about what's behind diseases, you come back to natural medicine principles so often so often and and we're seeing the limitations on the easy quick fix and now antibiotic resistance and all of those things so so um and the point i make is this let's say there's a particular biochemical pathway is discovered as being relevant in a, in a certain disease well what happens with the conventional scientists they have to develop a drug that targets that pathway and it's 10 years later, they may have an approved treatment. But if we understand the herb and, and it's credible, uh, and it is a credible basis for that understanding that that herb already targets that pathway, we can translate that finding into our practice tomorrow. And I believe that is a huge, a huge advantage that we have. Yes. 
Yeah, I agree, Sally. And I think, you know, uh, the time will turn out perhaps a bit late for us, but to be on our side in the sense that most of the health issues, at least in the developed world, are the ones that are pretty immune to conventional pharmacology, you know, the long term, yes. the chronic, the senescence, the diabetes, the uh, all those related inflammatory conditions, uh, where we have a, a head start, if we can say so more clearly, perhaps. And, and, and even more so uh, now with long COVID rearing its ugly head, um, to be honest, I really feel, I genuinely feel I've looked at the literature, I've had decades of experience treating ME, chronic fatigue syndrome and so on. I really feel that if herbs aren't being used, these people will not get an answer, that herbs have a vital, necessary and fundamentally unique role to play in helping people recover from long COVID. And hopefully that recognition will come through, at least at a one-on-one -on -one level in clinical practice, if not in a broader, broader forum. Well, that's been a wonderful, rich conversation, Kerry. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, uh, and, you know, as I said earlier on, there's much more you can find about Kerry. If you go to the Mills and Bone Academy, you'll find links to other work that Kerry does, his books and so on. Um, I shall look forward to many more opportunities of working with you as well. And uh, I'm yes. very, great, very grateful Likewise. for you sharing your time with us here today. Thank you so much, Kerry. Thank you, Simon. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating. That would really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. Or learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. We'll be back with another episode of The Herbcast soon. Thanks for joining.